Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Kevin Roberts, CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Dr. Roberts holds a PhD in American history from the University of Texas at Austin. He has been a college professor and president, as well as the founder of a classical school. His work currently focuses on approaching public policy issues with the desire to increase self-governance and decrease government overreach. He gravitates to initiatives on education reform, improving history and civics instruction, and transparency in government. Today, we're going to be discussing the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan in light of American history. Kevin, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure. Well, before we get into details about Afghanistan, I wonder if you could walk us through a bit of your story. Uh, I am fascinated by uh, people who move into higher education and then life takes them elsewhere. So tell us a bit about your journey. What took you into the world of running a college and then out of it? And uh, what, what brought you to the Texas Public Policy Foundation? Well, great question. So I've gone in and out of higher education twice. So uh, the first was to, to do graduate work and, and be a tenure track professor in history early in my career. And, and what appealed to me there was my passion for history and passion for teaching. And I did a lot of research as well, which was fun. I, I always wanted to lead a school. And so when I was a young history professor, I thought that while I loved researching and loved teaching, that I one day might want to be a college president. And then I realized if I stayed on the track that I was, that I'd have to go through all these positions of being associate dean and dean and so on. And, you know, this is 20 something years ago. The bureaucracy was bad enough. The politics of that were bad enough. I just thought if I do that, that's not going to be a very fun, fun project. And so I voluntarily left, even though things were going well, and ended up a few years later, starting my own K through 12 school. And there that school succeeded and is now flourishing, not because of me, but because I was able to attract really good faculty who knew what they were doing and really good parents and students. And that school has regularly been recognized as one of the top Catholic schools in the country. And that was a very fulfilling experience for me and told me that while college professors can do a really uh, important job, and in fact they do, that it isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be in a college classroom where important formation and education start, that that can be at a much younger grade. So uh, fast forward to the, the Wyoming Catholic College needing a second president, someone who knew something about fundraising and recruiting, and also was an academic. And I ended up there for a few years, which was wonderful in every respect, including the, the two successful fights that we had with the Obama administration, one as a co-plaintiff with Little Sisters of the Poor in fighting and defeating an evil administration on their contraceptive mandate, and secondly, rejecting federal student loans and grants, which obviously uh, we were able to follow the path of Hillsdale and Grove City in, in doing. It was that experience, to get to the heart of your question, that sort of wet my whistle for policy work and the through Providence, a little bit of serendipity, I ended up at Texas Public Policy Foundation in the, in the city where I finished my education. And it has been a great pleasure to, to wed all of those interests of mine, the academic research, which we do here on policy, as well as the, the, the passion that I have for proclaiming the message. So it's, it really is the Lord's work every day. 
That's absolutely fantastic, Kevin. I, I love that story uh, in part because it's I find it very encouraging uh, to hear you say that that kind of formation can happen in earlier grades. So I've heard from several professors and heads of colleges that uh, to some extent when they get students as freshmen, if they've already bought into a progressive narrative or a, a set of identity politics, in a very real sense, it's too late for them to achieve the good that a college education really should help them achieve. And uh, I, I work in the, uh, the 612 education space. I'm an assistant administrator for Thales Academy Apex. And I, I, part of what keeps me going each day is thinking about the fact that the work we're doing in middle school and high school is really, uh, it, it's preparing students to really receive those goods later on that uh, if that work doesn't happen earlier, they're really not able to, uh, uh, to experience what, what they should get uh, through a good college education. Well, that's well said, Josh. You know, it's it's scriptural, among other things, that you want to be able to impart knowledge, wisdom on the most fertile soil. And it isn't that it's impossible if someone has not gotten that kind of education or formation in grades K through 12. It's just a lot easier if they go to a school like where you're teaching or John Paul the Great Academy, which I started in Louisiana, modeled off of other schools. This wasn't my idea. But the, the point is that having been able to see that from the standpoint of K through 12, as well as from the standpoint of being a college president and professor, I can really underscore a couple of times what you were saying. And so what I would, what I would conclude this, this comment with is to encourage you and others who are great school teachers, whether it's middle school or elementary or high school, and those, those episodes that you have where maybe one of your students is having a, a hard day emotionally or they're having a bad week academically, those can be very trying, but they're really worth it. It isn't just about their educational attainment. There's something far more important, and that is the human formation of that young person. And if more of our schools attended to that human formation, then our schools, our colleges, our civil society would be a heck of a lot healthier. Oh, that's, a, that's a great observation. I think that, that uh, that's probably a good segue into uh, into policy discussion uh, as well, because I think there's uh, it's become more evident to me over the last two years just how much of everyday life is shaped by different policies. I had a conversation earlier in the season this episode will be dropping in with Professor Nick Higgins at North Greenville University. And he walked us through uh, an analysis of the way that laws are passed by Congress, but then administrative or executive agencies are tasked with developing policies to implement those laws. And that, that kind of blew me away. I didn't quite realize just how big a world uh, policy was and how much that shapes the way different organizations have to act throughout all of uh, really all of American society. So uh, I, I'm grateful to hear that you're also working in the policy space as well. Yeah. And that's to, to your point about the administrative state. It's multifaceted that when most people hear policy, they probably immediately think of the legislative branch as they should, because that's the branch that should, in fact, be originating and implementing policy. Um, the folks who execute the policy, hence the name executive branch, would be the administrative state. The problem in America over the last half century is that legislators are doing less legislating, whether they be at the state level or the federal level, thereby turning over more of those really important policymaking decisions to unelected administrative bureaucrats. That's a huge problem as it pertains not just to liberty and bureaucracy, but also to really good policymaking. It's the main reason that in the last half century, we only need two human hands, no more than that, to count the important good policies that have been passed at the federal level.
Amazing. Well, uh, we we got together intentionally, uh, or originally at least, talk about uh, Afghanistan. I was fascinated by uh, your article uh, that you wrote on August 30th of 2021, entitled Afghanistan Southern Border Show Biden Uninterested in Defending Southern Border. And for our listeners, that's linked in the show description. Also, it'll be in our show notes. Uh, but I want to kind of take our conversation to Afghanistan. I really want to uh, get your perspective uh, as both a policy thinker and also as a historian on just what is uniquely bad about this exit. Of course, hopefully our listeners are familiar with how we got into Afghanistan. This was a response to 9-11. The U.S. military went in and uh, really found a chaotic space that was mostly ruled, though even that's probably more organized than it really was, uh, by the Taliban. But we stopped that and built a somewhat functional uh, Western-style democracy out of Kabul and the territories around it. But then, of course, uh, President Biden uh, followed through on steps that President Trump had already put in place to have the U.S. military withdraw seemingly overnight. Uh, In your article, you wrote that it's usually premature to assess contemporary events in history's light. So it's a sign of just how bad things are in Kabul that I, a historian, am ready to put it alongside the Bay of Pigs, the fall of Saigon, the Black Hawk Down incident, and 9-11 itself in the list of era-defining American humiliations. It's bad enough that it's happening. What's worse is that we chose it. Kevin, why do you rank this moment as right up there with the worst moments of 20th century American military history? Yeah, it's actually the, at the top of the list, uh, unfortunately. And, and the reason is that in each of those situations, the Bay of Pigs, the fall of Saigon, et cetera, I can find some silver lining. And, and you know, that may be because of hindsight. It most importantly would be because the military and civilian leaders of the American military had the humility to learn lessons. That's not the case here. Uh, this, this, this problem of the withdrawal from Afghanistan is not just grossly executed withdrawal. It isn't just what meets the eye. People have have seen a few news stories. It actually goes to the heart of something we were just talking about, and that's the growth of the administrative state. I say that, and listeners may think, well, what's the connection there? The connection is this. It's twofold. Rather than have people who actually know what they're doing execute the withdrawal of Afghanistan, you have two groups of people, each of them with a different problem who together for the first time in American history have made a blunder of unprecedented proportion. And and this is in an era when we overuse the word unprecedented. This truly has never happened to this level. Let me explain. On the one hand, and this has gotten the most news, you have military commanders with an arrogance that is hubris, that they know everything, they're more important than the civilian leaders, which is a gross misunderstanding, and I would even argue treasonous violation of our Republican, little r, Republican principles. But they, after the fact, even when what they said happened clearly didn't, and when what they said didn't happen clearly did, deny every aspect of that withdrawal that is on their shoulders. And they ought to be court-martialed for it, starting with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not to mention the treasonous act he did even before that in contacting China and, and letting them know some of our strategic plans. But this, not to go down that trail just yet, at least, the second group 
is an equally problematic group. And it speaks straight to the heart of this problem with the administrative state. And it's these coastal self-appointed elites who went to fancy colleges that have been around a few hundred years who think they're smarter than you and me because we live in the middle of the country. And they wouldn't know a war zone if it hit them upside the head. They wouldn't know a, a challenging area if it were outside Manhattan or Cambridge, Massachusetts. But they think they know everything. And they were responsible for implementing some of that withdrawal and also responsible for explaining it to us. And so it isn't just that what meets the eye is a problem. Obviously, this was a bungled withdrawal. It isn't just that the United States of America was negotiating with terrorists. We were negotiating with the Taliban, seeking their permission to withdraw the way we did. It's that we have a longer running problem, Josh, and that is these two groups of people, the upper echelon of the military. I'm not talking about the, the second tier of officers, certainly not questioning anyone, any veteran's heroism. And then also they're very willing, these people are very willing to work with these unelected bureaucrats who believe they know everything. And they think that those of us who might actually know a little bit actually are just troglodytes who should keep our mouths shut. I'm not willing to do that. And praise God, we have a growing number of veterans who aren't. And it's about time we take back this country on the basis of what happened in Afghanistan alone. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, regular veterans in there, too, in part because uh, I've, I've talked with a couple friends who uh, one who served in, in Iraq and uh, a couple others who served in Afghanistan. My cousin served uh, two tours of duty in Afghanistan. This has been incredibly difficult for them, uh, both on like a mental level and just sort of uh, literally questioning the purpose of why we were in Afghanistan, if this is how we're going to leave. Um, could you walk us through some specifics? Uh, you mentioned a um, give us a little bit more specifics about military commanders and hubris. Where do you see the problems of hubris uh, leading to wrong decisions that have direct impact on, on people's lives? Well, I'll limit myself to a couple. I, it's a long list, but the, the, the first that comes to mind is the timeline itself. Uh, if, you, if you study military history, or even if you don't study military history, if you just have the wisdom to talk to a senior military official or watch an interview of one, that timeline was so compressed that there was no way that every American, every American friend or any Afghani who did not want to remain in a Taliban-ruled country could get out on that timeline. It is hubris for military commanders to say that it's possible to implement that pace of withdrawal. And the reason that they did so is because they were negotiating with the Taliban. The Taliban said, you, you need to get out of here by that date certain. And that leads me to the second point, the second example of hubris. We never, ever should have abandoned the base at Bagram. It is hubris. It's spitting in the faces of your family members and friends who fought in Afghanistan to give up that hard fought ground. It is hubris to believe that the United States from 8,000 miles away can maintain some sort of strategic control over Afghanistan or the region without having our men and women in uniform there. I'm not talking about a huge presence. I'm talking about the presence uh, sort of along the lines of what we've kept in Korea, in Eastern Europe. The mere presence of Americans is a stabilizing force. And I find it just a, a gross violation of every principle we know about 
maintaining military power for our military commanders to have done, there are senior military commanders to have done what they did. Obviously, there were military commanders lower down the chain who simply had to obey orders. Sure. Now, the example of Korea is fascinating in contrast, because there we've kept a minimal force for uh, going on 70 years now that has managed to keep the demilitarized zone essentially the same as it was at the end of the Korean War. And that that barrier has helped South Korea become a flourishing Western democracy in the Far East. And that's a and that, that's really a, a huge part of that is the American presence there along the demilitarized zone. Well, that's exactly right. And it, it makes me think perhaps something that would be a, a third example of hubris, which is spending $85 billion on a war. Um, the, I mean, that's hubris alone. But the, the, and of course, it's our senior military commanders asking for that kind of investment, which might be worth it, actually, if we were able to not necessarily control the country. I'm, I'm not a conservative who wants to empire build. But I do believe in the goodness and virtue of, of American society. And I you just look at the number of people who want to get out of Afghanistan. It's pretty clear who the good guy in this is, and it's the United States of America. I just find it hubris to be specific and to contrast it with Korea, that our military commanders would think that you know we could somehow rely on Afghan military partners to keep the peace. Um, look, I want to be as charitable as I can toward other humans. At the very least, that's extraordinarily ignorant, but most likely it is purposefully dishonest. And I think that they didn't need to look far relative to the size of the earth to see the example in Korea, which has worked extremely well. And not only has it been a stabilizing force south of the demilitarized zone, it's kept those knuckleheads in power north of the DMZ straight. And it's also been assigned to China, which is kind of how this comes full circle, to leave us the heck alone. Uh, that's really going to be the piper we pay, pay the price of here as a result of this terrible withdrawal, is having to deal with a much more emboldened China. Uh, the church I'm part of has had a long-term interest in supporting missionaries who are working uh, with a particular uh, Muslim minority group, the uh, the Hui people in uh, in China. There are also, at, in the midst of reading about all the events in Afghanistan, I was uh, surprised to learn there are lots of Hui people in Afghanistan as well. And uh, that one of the big concerns uh, is that now... China, in working with the Taliban, will create avenues through which they can persecute the same people in Afghanistan that they have been persecuting in China. But there's a longstanding ethnic hatred between the Han and the Hui that the Chinese communist government is quite happy to, uh, to further. Um, now, with, with that in mind, I, I would love to get your thoughts on kind of the broader consequences of, of American support leaving Afghanistan. I know um, plenty of people this will will read this move as perhaps a poorly handled logistical nightmare, but ultimately good because it's getting America out of uh, foreign entanglement and uh, really stopping the uh, outdated image of Team America World Police to go back to a terrible movie from uh, the early 2000s. But at the same time, I think there's I, uh, what what is the cost in terms of democracy, human rights, and perhaps even religious liberty concerns in Afghanistan with the United States withdrawing? What what are your thoughts there? Well, you mentioned one. In fact, you taught me something: the the presence of of the way minority in Afghanistan, and the Chinese taking advantage of that. The the second thing is to your your point, a little bit uh, longer longer term view, is that it is not mutually exclusive. For the United States, on the one hand, to avoid 
empire building, as was the case for about 10 years in Afghanistan and for that matter, Iraq, and also the United States to be influential. And I think, and I don't mean the following to be a partisan um, toward one administration or another, but the point is the previous administration, I think, had the Afghan withdrawal largely correct. Uh, that is to say that some of their plans were not just a, a slower timeline, but also one that would maintain a military presence longer. I actually would go one step further and, as you know, uh, would have kept personnel, military personnel at Bagram. I don't think the Trump administration was thinking that, but and I think that they were mistaken by that. But the problem is that the current administration believes that you've got to delete American influence abroad, that this, this, this idea that we get from Washington's farewell address to avoid foreign entanglements is something I happen to believe is a noble objective. That doesn't mean that we should conduct withdrawals the way we did in Afghanistan in the last two months. It doesn't mean that we need to withdraw American military service personnel all around the country, because all that's going to do to sum up here, Josh, is create more conflict. What the United States has proved for the most part, there have been exceptions to this, but for the most part, is that we can achieve peace through strength. We can achieve peace through power. And I think that's where the previous administration was going. And look, ideology, political preferences aside, of course, I wish the best for the current administration, but the path that they're on looks like it's a continuation of the Obama administration, where not only were we doing this kind of deleting of American influence around the world, witness President Obama's withdrawal of, of um, defense forces in Eastern Europe, but it looks as if we're going to accelerate it. That might sound sweet, but I guarantee you, with history as a guide, that will create more conflict than it actually gets rid of. I think we've already started to see some of that. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did a fascinating report on their uh, podcast. Uh, uh, they just—I think it's the one just called the Journal. It's their stories about uh, power, and they told a fascinating story in about 15 minutes of the uh, women's soccer team getting out of Afghanistan and uh, and really how they were fleeing because they knew that the Taliban was not going to be at all friendly towards women who had determined that they wanted to play soccer and represent their country on a national and then a global stage. And uh, they kind of, it, it's a fascinating story and uh, stories of persecution of churches, of pastors have already started to filter through. Uh, and, and it only makes each time I read one of those, it only makes me wonder what I'm not reading, what, which stories did not make it out yeah. uh, to the West. That's a good point. You know, a couple of quick things, although they're important points about the um, women's soccer team from Afghanistan they were able to get out of there because private people orchestrated the, you know, their extraction uh, in three or four different flights, as, as you probably know. Uh, I'm grateful to those private citizens, but what an embarrassment that the American government wouldn't do that and it, it, or couldn't. It, it leads me to the second point, which is you would think more of our elected leaders who are women, I'm thinking about Speaker Pelosi, mm -hmm. some female members of the United States Senate, would be able to check their ideology and bias at the door and criticize the administration for dramatically endangering not just women's rights, but women, period, in Afghanistan. It really shows the level of intellectual dishonesty that exists in the nation's capital. 
which is really unfortunate. I think there's a there's a conflation of uh, sort of imperialism or colonialism with mm-hmm. also recognizing that where the United States go, we do bring with us a sense of basic human basic humanity, basic human rights, and basic justice that establishes an equal playing field. Uh, I, I think we figured out ways to not necessarily go into a country and obliterate the indigenous culture that's there. Uh, the, there, there were some, there have been harms that we've done in that in previous sure. generations. But uh, in, in for Afghanistan, I think the the stories of particularly um, uh, educated women who have who had gained a professional identity that that's no longer possible. Those are just kind of heart wrenching and seem to be everything that the feminist movement has been asking for on a global scale. But now the United States is retreating from the ability to create that space for equal human access to education and employment. Yeah, that's right. And, and contrast that excellent summary you, you just articulated with the ebullient days and weeks following Iraqi and Afghani women voting for the first time. This is not just women in their countries voting for the first time, but in their entire region, in their culture. And that's the kind of thing that as a historian, I want to gravitate to and celebrate about America. Those things would not have happened. Those achievements would not have happened without America's goodness. But we also have to, as historians, weigh those against the rotten fruit of these bureaucrats who and, and, and senior military commanders who not just bungled this withdrawal, but they knew full well the consequences of it. And that, that tells me that we've got a lot of cleaning up to do in our own government before telling the rest of the world how to live. Well, I, uh, I do want to, I, I do want to back up and ask a previous question I skipped a moment ago, because I think you, you've uh, hinted at this in several places, but I want to, I want to uh, see, I want to see what you'd say uh, directly to this. Um, a lot of the blame has been handed to the Biden administration. I was really surprised to see the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, everybody was willing to run uh, critical headlines about the Biden administration the week after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and willing to say this was bungled. This was a disaster. This was a nightmare. I'm paraphrasing, not directly quoting, lest anyone wants to write in uh, flaming emails. Uh, but uh, is the blame of the Biden administration or even directly to President Biden for being the public face of the timeline, Is do you think that blame is legitimate? And then secondly, uh, what obligation does the commander in chief have for overseeing uh, the protection of American lives and American equipment, particularly in leaving occupied territory? Great questions. Uh, I'll be really succinct in answering your first question. Yes, President Biden deserves blame. And it tells you how bad that situation is when his willing accomplices at the New York Times and Washington Post, which doesn't ever give my side, which is the conservative side, a fair shake, would criticize them. And having said that, I think that there's a, at least a little bit of blame to go around in the previous administration. I think that the, the Trump administration set in motion mm-hmm. the a withdrawal timeline and a communication with the Taliban that's, that's problematic. I happen to believe, having played an informal advisory role on domestic policy with the Trump administration, that they had good enough leaders that they would have reversed course and extended the timeline and maybe even kept forces at Bagram. And that leads me to the second point about, you know, what what obligations any president has. I think that the Joe Biden of the 1980s, or at least I would like to think so, would have had the intellectual honesty to, to address the American people and say, look, 
the first few weeks of this are going really poorly. This is not at all how I envision this as the president of the United States. And it's embarrassing. And I owe you and I owe those people to fix it. That Joe Biden, had he been able to say that several weeks ago, would have seen his, his popularity ratings actually going up rather than cratering as they are now. Because you know what Americans have always loved? Authenticity. Honesty. <laughs> yes. Honesty. And we can handle, actually, we handle a leader saying, man, that 100% of the blame's on me. This is how I want to fix it. Well, I'm telling you, I don't think 100% of the blame is on Biden. You know, maybe it's 80%. Um, but the, he didn't do that. And therefore, he owned it. And it's his problem. And it's something that will permanently be a part of his legacy. And that's a, that's a tragedy, not just for him politically, but for this country, because it also is a permanent part of the American legacy abroad. I think that's, that's a fascinating observation about the American receptivity to authenticity and honesty. It reminds me of FDR and his fireside chats. It's for all that, sure. I think FDR's approach to handling the, uh, the depression was terrible and probably exacerbated it. Uh, he definitely tapped into a need that the American people felt for someone to recognize just how bad things were and to tell them that it can get better. And I think it's interesting to think about Biden in the 80s. That was 40 years ago. And if I understand, now, I, I wasn't alive for very much of the 80s. I was born in 88. But my understanding is that the Joe Biden of the 1980s had already been in politics long enough to accrue a reputation as a man of some level of integrity. He had yes. already taken his stance uh, in favor of the Hyde Amendment and kind of ca carved out his niche as a Catholic Democratic senator. And but the Joe Biden that we've seen over the past four years or really, I guess, three years since he started really campaigning uh, seriously is a Joe Biden willing to compromise on things that he never previously compromised on. I, I remember uh, when he came out saying that all of a sudden he was willing to give give on the Hyde Amendment and willing to completely flip-flop on positions he'd held for longer than any of his millennial voters have been alive. Uh, so that yeah. that suggests to me that the, uh, uh, and I, I, I would say the same thing about President Trump, about in different ways, uh, neither Trump nor Biden really have the statesman-like quality to authentically go to people and say, there is a problem and I am the leader who can lead us to a solution. Uh, That's he, right. He's really lost that credibility. Yeah, you're, you're right about both men and in that respect. And I would say to, to underscore, Josh, your excellent observation about Biden of the 80s versus Biden today is that Biden won the 2020 election because senior citizen voters remember Biden of the 80s as someone with a reputation for integrity and a reputation for having foreign policy chops. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that both of those things were true then. There are some people who say they were never true, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that that's what they were thinking in the, 20, in the fall of 2020. And he's been a tremendous disappointment in many respects, I think chiefly that one, because again, giving him the benefit of the doubt, having come of age as a, as a conservative in the 1980s, while I never would have voted for Biden as president, had he become president in the 80s or the 90s, I would have thought, well, he is, he's in that generation of Democrats who are pro-life, pro-America, strong defense. They're going to be a good decision maker because of their integrity. And it really is a tragedy. I, I, I mean this as a lifelong movement conservative. It is a tragedy to see our current president devolve 
to the worst common denominator of the radical left, which actually believes in nothing but harming this country. No, no disagreement on this end. Um, Now, I was really intrigued as your article went on to suggest that this was a key moment, not just for our international policy or our southern border issues, but really a watershed moment in relation to the confidence people have in the U.S. federal government. Uh, I want to read another quote from your article and then uh, get to a question. Uh, You wrote that for most of American history, the United States federal government did a credible job of meeting people's expectations. Americans of my parents' generation, for example, reasonably expected the federal government to successfully defend them from enemies abroad and secure law and order at home. They expected it to meet the challenge of public health crises and run an efficient immigration system. They expected it to assert a monopoly on national authority and to promote and defend a common American civic narrative. They expected these things because it routinely delivered on those expectations. No longer. Suddenly, catastrophically, the recent past reveals that the federal government in Washington, D.C. cannot be relied upon to do any of these things, end quote. What changed? Why are we no longer able to count on the U.S. federal government protecting the very people who elected its members into office? Great question. Succinctly, what changed was that the people who are making the decisions are farther and farther away from the people electing decision makers. And it goes back to our opening thread where I tried to emphasize the the importance and and the tragic importance of the administrative state, which is, I know when I say that seemingly ephemeral, it's, it's, it's this abstract thing that people may hear, but they're not really sure how it works. Well, what I mean by that is we go to the polls and for federal offices, we elect our U.S. congressman and our U.S. senator directly. Together, their two chambers, as all of us know, compose the legislative branch. Think of how little the legislative branch actually does. Now, I don't believe that they need to be passing laws every week. As a conservative, I think the fewer laws they pass, the better. But the one thing that they have failed to do, Democrats and Republicans, increasingly over the last 40 years, is do what is not just their constitutional obligation, but their moral obligation, and that is be a check on executive power. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the way that works on what I like to call the sidewalk level, Josh, is that the executive branch, whether under Republican or Democrat presidents grows, the, there are more and more policymakers, decision makers inside the bowels of the administrative state. This is what we call the deep state. And the more that that has happened and the longer that it has occurred, the harder it is for the American people as individuals or even in the aggregate voting together in an election to get their hands on it and change it. I happen to think that had there been a second Trump term, that we would have made some significant progress there. Uh, The fact that there isn't is a real tragedy when it comes to this, because it would have had a real impact on that. If people are listening to this and they're trying to figure out, well, what do I do about it? You got to vote for men and women in federal office especially, but to some extent, even your state legislatures, who are willing to actually take the hard votes required to get their hands on the executive branch. Because whether it is Afghanistan, whether it is the the debacle and human tragedy at the U.S. border with Mexico, or whether it is the weekly flip-flopping on on vaccine and, and COVID guidance from the Center for Disease Control, we have lost faith in the institution of the federal government. And that's not good. No, it's not. Uh, a couple quick follow-up questions. Uh, I want to make sure I understood something you said a moment ago. 
Is the deep state a synonym for the administrative state? Uh, great question. Uh, yes, but it's it's like when you're in the thesaurus and uh, it's, it's like th that word on steroids. So the administrative state is uh, for the most part, not, not to pejorative, doesn't have a pejorative connotation. It's an explanation of the bureaucrats who, who compose the executive branch. The deep state is, and I intend it this way, as, as forcefully and strongly and aimed as directly at them as I can. They are enemies of the state. They are bureaucrats who believe they know better than you and me. They always will because they went to some college that's fancy and they believe that they didn't have to listen to members of Congress. You can look at their at the, at the sarcasm that they use when they testify before Congress and they have to be fired. It's the number one thing we need to do. Uh, OK, uh Second Can I be any clearer for you? <laughs> no, I think that's really helpful. I've, I've, I've only ever heard that phrase used in context where I was also worried that I was talking to a conspiracy nut. You don't strike me as a conspiracy nut. I am decidedly not. In fact, I have a great disdain for conspiracies. <laughs> we're we're, we're can, not I, talking. I mean, I, I, the, the phrase QAnon and deep state tended to come up <laughs> together last year. So I'm glad. Yeah, you're, 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 you make a good point there. As a historian and policy guy, I, uh, I have uh, no tolerance for conspiracies. Yeah. This is the honest to God truth, folks. And it, it's been on display in the last several years. This, uh, this may not be a fair analogy, but uh, my wife and I went through a couple of years where we watched the TV show Madam Secretary that is uh, following, I forget the actress's name, but it's the same actress who's the Secretary of State throughout the, all five seasons. And it was really fun in the first few seasons. It goes ridiculously left uh, by the final two seasons. <laughs> but it illustrates exactly what you're describing because it's this group of elites who have sort of a set of ideas and ideals about what the the way to answer certain problems are there are multiple season story arcs that involve solving climate change or reducing climate change none of the characters and not the actors and actresses but even the characters themselves none of them are scientists or climatologists they yeah. are people who are tasked with writing policy that then a congressman or senator can then voice support for and yeah. That, that's a problem that they, these aren't they're they're further away they don't have the actual knowledge to deal with what they're talking about yep that's exactly right okay uh secondly i just want to take a moment to quickly mention uh my favorite part of the trump administration happened i think pretty early on when uh, he announced a rule that ever across every executive agency if they wanted to propose a new regulation they had to cut two <laughs> and yes. I would love to have seen another four years of that policy in place. And that's, that's just... Oh boy, I agree. And, and I, I, I think that's right. And you know, that's exactly relevant to what we're talking regarding the deep state. That, that, that is a, was an edict that was aimed at diminishing the size of the executive branch and diminishing the power of these unelected bureaucrats. And, and hats off to Trump and Vice President Pence and others. Uh, the ratio ended up being 22 to one. So for every new regulation that they issued, they deleted 22. Which I'm, and this too may not be a fair analogy, but I know in the school world, we tend to come up with rules and policies that make sense in a given year based on the certain students and what they do. But given two or three years later, it's, we kind of have to go back and revisit those rules. Say, do these rules still make sense given our current circumstance? Yeah. Otherwise we have this ever growing mass of rules that just become burdensome rather than helpful. And they, they have the force of law. I mean, that's, that's the important thing for listeners to note is that they have the same weight or almost the same weight 
as a as a law from Congress. And in fact, they do have the same weight in the absence of a relevant law from Congress. And that's really the vulnerability that we've seen exploited. I think it's also just worth noting that you've identified a really key problem, that the problem here is that the legislature is not fulfilling its, its constitutional role. The, and the executive, the executive side is spreading to fulfill that role when it should both be checked by the legislature and then the legislature should actually pass law. Yep. I, I'm thinking we part of this reminds me a lot of the uh, arguments I've heard about the weakness of abortion law on a federal level because it's, it's basically non-existent. The Supreme Court ruled in 1973 in Roe v. Wade, but we've been at a 51-49, 50-50 split in this country over whether or not there should be uh, federally guaranteed access to abortion. And we have yet to have a piece of legislation that would actually settle that. Instead, we have a Supreme Court case that every Supreme Court analyst agrees is a terribly written decision. Whether whichever side of that one they're on, it's a terribly written case that does not really have constitutional grounding. And we've now got a another 50 year grassroots movement to try and overturn a terribly written court case, which points in my mind back to the need for a legislature that's willing to take uh, courageous, risky stances and see if they can actually pass law that resonates with the American people. Or not? Well, that's, yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's the solution, right? And so, a good example would be the Texas legislature and and a handful of other legislatures this year who passed abortion uh, anti-abortion laws. That Texas and Mississippi seem to have cases that are most likely to be heard by the Supreme Court. Those legislators at the state level had the courage to do that. You know, we we should hope that we would see the same thing at Congress, although it's just been few and far between. And, and, I, and it just, it reminds me, and we know this from human history, especially in democracies and republics, what's the thing most lacking? Political courage. And so the good news is that that has been a, a frequent uh, ingredient that we needed more of in American history. But every time in American history that we desperately needed some, the lack of it inspired others to step up. And that's why I think these kinds of conversations are so important. Fantastic. Well, uh, that, that's probably a great transition towards the uh, the last bit of your article, because uh, you concluded, hopefully, which made me so excited. Uh, you, you argued that uh, states really have the ability to pick up the slack that is dropped by the U.S. federal government in terms of the actual work of governing. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple questions about that. Uh, is that a reasonable answer? And secondly, uh, what what would like could state governments fill the void if we had a diminished federal administrative state? Like, what would that actually look like? Great questions. Um, it, it's not just a reasonable answer; it's the right one, and it's the right one. Not to go too academic here, but it's the right one because remember, whatever sovereignty the federal government has, it gets from states, who in turn get it from us, the people. I mean, that's. In the United States, we have the benefit of having a very clearly delineated origin story. And it isn't just a story. It's not a myth. It's true that from the 13 colonies emerged a group of confederated states operating quasi-independently, but then together in, uh, in an imperfect way during the time of the revolution. And then they came together. They sent representatives of the people to Philadelphia to, to establish a new government. That new government that was established was recognized, just, just bear with me here a minute, it was recognized by everyone 
federalists, anti-federalists, loyalists, patriots, because of what? Because the people sent their representatives wearing their state hats, their, their <laughs> insignia, and they conferred part of that sovereignty onto the federal government. And so the appropriate way, the accurate way to understand the United States 230 something years later is that that's still the case. That has not changed. There's not a single instance that has changed that. And so it, that leads me to the, the second question you asked, Josh, which is, let's say we succeed in diminishing the administrative state. Can states pick up the slack? Yeah. You see this every day. You see it right now in Texas, where the federal government is intentionally not doing its job that is explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, which is to protect our border, to have a transparent immigration system. And the state of Texas is having to do both. Uh, trust me, the, the governor of Texas has other things to do than to also do the federal government's job. But I think you're going to see this increasingly in other policy areas. And I guess the good news, you know, there's the curmudgeon part. The optimistic part would be that the good news is that people are recognizing this and Americans are recognizing it. And I think it's leading to a rebirth of federalism. The definition of federalism is, is the first response to your question, a shared sovereignty, shared duties between states and the federal government. And for so much in our history, it worked not only well, but beautifully. So really then you would see a, you don't see America as this hopefully or a hopelessly uh, doom faded country that is going to collapse into tyranny, but rather a, we're, our current moment has the possibility for people to realize we don't have to do it this way. There actually is a better system that is actually in, in our constitution that we could follow. And states have the ability to provide that leadership for their people. And the federal government operating kind of as the top at those issues that not rise above those states that are clearly delineated by the constitution. Yeah, uh, it, well said. And you know, the good news and bad news is that America has always been, to, to paraphrase Jefferson and then Adams and then Reagan, just one generation away from revolution. And the reason for that is our system of little r, Republican government, federalism, the shared sovereignty between the federal and, and state governments, is one that pits human nature, which is not great <laughs> in its origin, versus this system. And you know who gets to figure that out each generation are the people. And so I, I, I tell folks, if you're dissatisfied with the, the, what you think is the future of the country, then get more involved, get more active, because otherwise that descent into tyranny will happen in your lifetime that has been guaranteed in every generation in this country since our founding. Well, uh, that is a fabulous answer. I'd say that's an exciting answer. Uh, Kevin, just in case a listener or viewer for, uh, for any YouTube uh, watchers, if they want to learn more about the topics we've been discussing today, where can they go for more resources? Texaspolicy.com. We're the largest public policy group outside Washington, D.C. We have an office in D.C. as well. So you don't have to be in Texas to come to our website or to, to read our research. Uh, we're emerging as a national player, and I think that's good because of our understanding of limited government. And that virtue really does exist outside the nation's capital. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't virtuous people there, but where there is centralized power, we ought to be really skeptical. And so we encourage people to come to texaspolicy.com and learn more. Excellent. I think it's certainly the case. Uh, Lord Acton was uh, probably not always correct that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but he did certainly identify a tendency and a temptation. And I'm, I'm encouraged to know there are folks like you and, uh, and your, your partners doing work to hopefully cultivate virtue, uh, even in the heart of our nation's capital. 
Uh, Kevin, where can people find your work online besides the uh, Texas Policy website? Well, you'll find me there. I'm really active on Twitter against my better judgment, um, but that's that's where policymakers, congressmen, legislators pay attention to the news, and, and uh, we're newsmakers. So on Twitter, I'm at Kevin Roberts TX. You can find me there. And uh, there, Josh, I try to maintain a balance between sarcasm about the state of American affairs with a joyfulness and optimism about the future. Oh, fantastic. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Kevin Roberts of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or on YouTube, and share it with your friends. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.